The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, break out the hats and hooters and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 407 with guest Ted Neward, recorded live Wednesday, November 19, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik, on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who wants to wish everyone a happy Christmas Hanukkah Kwanzaa, Don, Carl Franklin. Hey, this is Carl Franklin, and I'm here with Richard Campbell. Hello, sir. We are the guys from .NET Rocks, and we're here to uh, give you a live conversation with Mr. Keynote himself, Ted Neward. Hi, Ted. Hey, guys. How you doing? Uh, we don't have a bio for I guess we don't really need a bio for you. You're Ted Neward. You've been on .NET Rocks <laughs> more than anyone else. I think. Is, that, is that a true statement? It's a yeah. three-way tie between you, uh, Rocky Latka, and Stephen Forte. Yeah. Right on. It's all in around in the 8-9 range here. Right so on. You just tack, tacked up another one, Bob. Uh, well, you know, Rocky, Steve. It's good. Get your heart out. Good company. Yeah. You are looking more and more like the Big Lebowski every day. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All okay. I need right now is the White Russian. Yep. You know, and the carpet, a beverage. Well, yeah, the rug really ties the room. The together. rug, yeah, but you can't really bring that on the plane. No, otherwise. it's difficult. It's difficult. Yeah. So I'm thinking, actually, I'm going to carry around like a small version of one <laughs> and sort of lay it down <laughs> as I start my presentation and just say, "This rug really ties the whole talk together." <laughs> Great. You know. So speaking, I'm of just talks, worried about nihilists showing up. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, that would be bad. So you talked about uh, speaking of talks. You did the keynote here yes. at OrDev this yep. morning. Yeah. Um, why the next uh, five to ten years will be about programming languages. Yeah, you, they call this the a renaissance of languages. Or is right. that your term? Um, it sort of, I used the term in the talk, and when Michael contacted me about you know, doing a talk and saying that they, their theme was you know, renaissance and so forth, I yeah. said, oh, okay, well, you know, I've got this talk that I've done before, you know, the renaissance of the programming language, et cetera. And he said, oh, cool, let's, let's use that one. We've talked to you a number of times about sure. languages in general. I remember right. back at right. Dev Reach in Bulgaria a few years right. ago, we were saying, learn a new language a year. Right. And, right, I, right. and I thought, we're going to run out of languages in a couple of years. And then, then this happened, and now yeah. we're never going to run well, out of languages. Well, yeah, you were, you were wrong to think that in the first place. Because <laughs> there, were, there were, you know, there are languages that 
I mean, VB.net and C Sharp. Well, so, yeah. I mean, and, and if you really want to have fun, right, you can go off and learn Ook Sharp. Ook Sharp. Ook Sharp, yes. Yeah, yeah. Oren is laughing. Ook Sharp is a programming language made up of principally of tuples of the three sounds orangutans made. Ook, Ook, and Ook. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 it and it compiles. It turns into .NET assemblies that you can reflect on. And, and all. Just, yeah, some people the have, CLR has made some things a little too easy. Some people yeah, have well, way too much time on their hands. You know, I mean, that's all I can say. You Oop. get drunk one night, you're a geek. What are you going to do? You, you write a compiler up the town. Yeah. No, no, you're going to write a new write a language. language. I mean, come on, so, language. So how has it happened? I mean, how has the adoption of new languages has it really come true? Are most people out there learning new languages like like they think they should? Well. um... I, I, you know, are they learning new languages like they think they should? I don't know. Are they learning new languages like we um, thought they would? Like maybe we thought they would. Well, I think there's definitely some buzz, right? Yeah. At, at PDC a couple of weeks ago, um, the last slot on the last day, which which you guys know is typically reserved for you know the talks yeah. that you know maybe we the not fluffy sure talks, yeah, yeah, survive or. For whatever reason, the only presentation on F sharp, right, the object functional language that came from MS Research, et cetera, was in that slot. Wow. And so was my co-author, there? well, that was the thing, right? Amanda and I were like, oh, this is terrible. Nobody's yeah. going to show up. This is awful. We were really pissed at the tech. The room was packed. Wow. The wow. room was wall-to-wall people, standing room only. Mm. There is definite, definite buzz around yeah. the idea of, you know, people going out and learning F sharp at least. Now, are they going out and learning Erlang? Are they learning Haskell? Are they learning some of the other ones that are not, you know, direct CLR descendants? Probably not. Or if they're doing so, it's hard for us to measure. But talking, for example, with Simon Peyton Jones, who's a guy at MS Research, sure. one of the principal forces behind Haskell. Yeah. He's been saying that, you know, the Haskell download numbers are climbing much more so this year than they were in any previous year. So okay. people are definitely paying attention. So there's some something level. going on. Yeah, what? yeah. I guess like that's the question. Why are why the sudden interest in new languages? Is it the, is it new problems that need to be solved with functional languages well, that uh, have, we didn't have before? This is this is a combination of a couple of things, right? This sort of goes back to some of the keynote material, which I believe they recorded and will make available on the web if somebody wants to see sort of the whole story. Ordev.org. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it's actually a combination of a couple of things. Number one, about a decade and a half ago, uh, we, the, the practicing programming community, kind of got to a point where we said, that's it. Languages are done. We have objects. This is the way God thinks about the world. There's nothing, there's nothing left to do. Right. Right. This is, this is the fundamental basis for all programming language from, you know, I mean, as they're programming the supercomputers on the Starship Enterprise, they'll be doing it in objects, right? We, we fundamentally believed that for a long time. And we saw a number of efforts along the way, the whole application server approach, EJB, the micro container, Spring, all of these things were still centered around the idea of taking objects and making them transactional and persistent and all this stuff. Mm. But it was still rooted even though if you looked at the EJB specification, you looked at it and said, wow, this really isn't the way we were taught to do objects. This really isn't domain modeling in any stretch of the imagination. These are still objects. This is still the way God thinks about the world. Mm. And what happened in about, about 1995, 96 or so, a guy uh, working in CLOS, a researcher, Common Lisp Object System, 
CLOS has a very powerful meta object protocol facility where you can walk up to any object at runtime and just start playing with it, right? You can add fields, yeah. you can add methods, etc. And this is known as meta object protocol capabilities. And he realized that people were frequently getting themselves into trouble over this. So he wanted to create a constrained subset of MOP and bake it into a programming language. The interesting thing is, when he did this language, he did it on top of the JVM. And that language became known as Aspect J. And that approach, that categorical name that we gave his idea of constrained subset was aspect-oriented programming. Right. The thing of it is, when I give this talk and I start talking about, you know, Gregor Casales started down this road, people are like, who? What? Why yeah. is this relevant? Yeah. And then they hear Aspect J. And if they're Java guys, they go, oh, wow. Or they hear aspect-oriented programming, right? And some of the .NET folks who've been following some of that stuff go, right. oh, wow. And what he did, I mean, regardless, you know, AOP, Aspect J, love it or hate it, regardless of where you sit on that particular fence, what he did is started us talking again about language. What he demonstrated very graphically is that, yeah, not everything fits neatly into an object model. Right. Well, we knew this the second we started working with objects. I mean, we had to sort of wrap our brains around the whole idea of objects. Well, see, define we. Because there are a lot of people, I think, if you were, if you were a programmer who's I will coming, define we. Okay, I define we. me, okay, okay, as a procedural programmer from the DOS days who right. then sort of got into Visual Basic and a little C++. Mm -hmm. That's, that was where I first got my introduction to objects. And, right. and it didn't seem very natural at first just because... Well, first of all, the language wasn't robust enough sure. to really do sure. the kind of stuff yeah, that you wanted to do. Yeah, but that's the price you pay for, you know, doing anything with the word basic. In it. Yeah. Nice. Thanks. <laughs> Just making you feel good, but, buddy. But even even so, that I felt that I've always felt like there was, you know, you're always trying to fit square pegs into round holes in some Well, there's certainly, sense. there's certainly, a, a, and I don't want to, I don't want, you know, anybody in, in, you know, who's listening to this to go, oh, Ted clearly hates objects. What an idiot. I, you know, I, I've, I was a C++ programmer for, well, I, I still am, quite frankly. Um, Java, C Sharp. I mean, I love the object language. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. The thing of it is, it is powerful, but not all encompassing. Mm -hmm. There are a number of things that go on. And I'll give you an example. When we start talking about, you know, one of the things I like to do when I'm doing example code is I use a person class, right? Create a very simple person class, yeah. first name, last name, age, and then maybe person spouse, yeah. right? Very simple object model, uh, very simple domain model. Now we come to the question of two people want to get married. Hmm. Well, how do we model this? Do we mod right. Do we have to create a minister class? Yeah. Well, okay, <laughs> more than just because min ministers and rabbis, you know, and, yeah, sure. and well, okay, actually justice of the peace. And so this how is do your we classic trying to fit the real world into an object model problem. Well, and, and this is exactly the case where it would just be easier to say this should really be a static method on person, but it's not really a persons don't really marry. Right. Know, they yeah. have to go to some, oh, man, I, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. we end up. Inventing, we end up, like you said, right. trying to put exactly. the square peg in the round hole. But for a long time, for at least the past decade, we did that in the belief that this was the way we needed to do it. This was the proper way to do things. This will all be good in the end. Exactly. If it's objects, it must be good. We right. really had sort of that conceived notion. Right. And what, what, 
Gregor's work with Aspect J and AOP and sort of going out and, and preaching to the masses a little bit is it shook us out of that complacency that said, yeah, everything needs to be an object. Mm. And it, so it, it made it okay, literally, to walk into a new project and say, you know what, I want to do something, but, you know, we want to do this new project, but I don't think we want to do it in a traditional object-oriented fashion. Mm -hmm. And it made it okay. And what that did is that opened the door now for people to go and look at other languages and other approaches, like functional, like dynamic, like some of these other things, mm. which we discovered, oh, wow, these, these are actually pretty productive, pretty useful uses. Instead of having to create an object that represents a function, the function is a first-class citizen in the language directly. So I don't have to build that infrastructure myself. Right. I mean, you really define, we have this sort of object-oriented stack, which is the, the strongly typed realm and, mm -hmm. and, and those sorts of things. And we have the dynamic stack, which is the loosely typed. And then functional is often a different field, again, where the function is the dominant uh, concept. Well, functional languages typically are even more strongly typed than yeah. the object languages we're familiar with, largely because they do a lot of type inference. Right. right? They will figure out the type for you, which is actually quite nice because in many cases they can automatically genericize the parameters that you would normally not think to parameterize. Right. right? Um, when Amanda and I do uh, F-sharp talks at various conferences, you know, we write a little swap function, right? Yeah. Let swap AB equals BA. And we say, okay, what are the types A and B? And people in the audience, oh, I think they're an object. Well, they would be if we were writing this in C-sharp maybe. Right. But when you allow F-sharp to do the IntelliSense thing and hover, it actually turns out that they are, in fact, generic parameters. And if we were to write the same thing in C-sharp, it would be like three or four lines long. Right. Now, the whole DSL thing is a totally other topic because we're not just talking about one language, but we're talking about a subset of the development community that's focus is to create languages uh, on uh, about the domain in which they're trying to solve problems. Well, so now yes we have no. now we have more languages that we create with and with Oslo with yet another language. We create a new language. Well, I mean, this notion of languages creating languages has been around for a long time. Right? Yeah. Prior to you know, prior to the current crop, you know, the DSL story. You know what we used to call DSLs? Little languages, and they were very popular in Unix for a long time. Right? Sed, awk, grep regular expressions. Yeah, okay. Themselves. These are all just little languages that were created to solve a unique and particular problem. Yeah. Now the goal with some of the DSL stuff is to say, let's extend that idea out to problem domains directly. And one of the things that we're still sort of wrestling with is how extensive should a DSL be? A Martin Fowler, um, who's the chief scientist at ThoughtWorks, where I work now, um, is working on a DSL book, and as he's done for the last couple, he's, he's doing the work in progress up on his website. Mm -hmm. But he's made an interesting statement, which I think drives a stake in the ground with respect to DSLs. He says, if you create a DSL that is Turing complete, you've gone too far. Interesting. You've gone it, too far. Isn't that the basic axiom of any language, and it's got to be Turing complete? Of general purpose programming languages, yes, yeah. absolutely. Let's define Turing complete. Well, okay, now you caught me. I'm not entirely sure of the formal definition. I can't dredge yeah, it up at the moment. Problem. There, there are very specific, Turing complete is basically a set of guidelines for 
features that any language. Right. Has Obviously, made. Alan Turing created yes, this list. This of, is the reference of what we're meaning. So right. we're not talking about a Turing machine. No, we're no, no, talking no, no, about no, no. something totally different. We're basically. I mean, it, it, when it, what it boils down to is, does your language support some basic constructs like looping, and conditionals, and some of those kinds yeah. of things? I mean, so, so if it's list. a complete language, in right? Other words. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If, to Martin's point, if you've gone that far, you're building a general purpose language, and what are you doing? And certainly there, I mean, part of part of where I'm coming from is, you know, this renaissance of language is sort of twofold. Number one, there's the DSL arm, which right. says, let's build little languages that are specific to a particular problem that, you know, are not Turing complete, that, that are not intended to be used across any other domain. Right. Right. Um, and very frankly, one of the examples that I've used for a while, although it doesn't fit with Martin's constraints, is the idea of, you know, the office automation model. Right. To yeah. have a scripting language that can drive Office, to drive Excel, to drive right. Word. And Which that's, sort of is a DSL if you think very, about the yes. objects in the in the model Absolutely. as the language itself. Absolutely. Sure. Now there, that language has definitely gotten to be more powerful than it probably needed to be. Yeah. Because people who were doing Office development said, well, it would be really nice if, would be really nice if, be really nice if. Mm. And so Microsoft basically got to the point where here, here's VB script. It's, it's everything VB, but it's a scripting language instead of being hosted in classic VB. Which, right. Well, this brings up another question is should, should a, a DSL that we're talking about these little languages are nice because they represent the domain. But what about taking the language you're already using, C sharp, mm -hmm. VBNet, mm -hmm. and just extending it with keywords that are domain specific? What does well, that do? There's, there's two different notions to DSL. Right. Again, this is Martin's nomenclature right. where he talks about internal DSL and external DSL. Yeah. External DSL is where I'm sitting down in a language, C++, C Sharp, Java, F Sharp, whatever, and I'm writing a parser and I'm writing an interpreter. And so the syntax can be exactly whatever I want it to be. And internal DSL is where I'm using the facilities, I'm using the flexibility of syntax within mm. a given language. Yeah. And the most commonly cited internal DSL language host here is Ruby, because Ruby has really some of the most flexible syntax of any language that most of us have ever seen, mm -hmm. right? Um, Lisp is another one that people commonly cite with respect to internal DSLs. The only problem is you've got all those parentheses that you know drive people <laughs> nuts. Um, both of these, though, the intent here is to, you know, use the syntax of the language. And there, we're not necessarily adding keywords, but we're using various tricks. Believe it or not, right. C++ was frequently used as an internal DSL language. Hmm. There are a number of game programming books that show you using the macro preprocessor to mm. let you define things in the language. And then, oh, okay, well, this just expands right. to a bunch of C++ code. It's not... It's not flawless. There yeah. are definitely edges to where you're going to fall off the edge of the world if you're not careful. Right. But, you know, that was an internal DSL for a lot of these game developers. Right. So let's talk about Oslo for a little bit. Let's talk about Oslo. Let's talk about what, what you know and what you've, uh, what you've seen. I saw a presentation at the PDC on Oslo, mm -hmm. and um, my initial thought was, uh, where's the simplicity? Um, I thought, uh, when I thought about Oslo and a DSL, I was thinking that it was really going to simplify development for the end user, not necessarily the DSL developer, mm -hmm. but the end user. And when they showed the end resultant syntax, while it was easier to understand because it was in terms of the domain, it really right. did still look like C-sharp code at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if they know where they're going yet. 
to be very blunt about it. I don't know if they know exactly what it is they're building or what the final product will be. I, I, I've, I'm getting a sense that, um, you know, they kind of have an idea, you know, that they want to use some of these language-oriented concepts to try to solve this problem of data. But yeah. what exactly, I mean, what is the problem of data? Right? Yeah. Where, where, what, what, what problem exactly are they trying to solve? Right. I've not heard them. I've not heard anybody, you know, answer that question. I haven't heard the business case. And, yeah. and I, I, is it for, are we trying to make a language for the IT professional? Are we trying to make a language for developers in many who know more about the domain than they do about programming? In many what are respects, we trying to do? I think what they're trying to do, this is, this is I think, an outgrowth of some of the uh, Greenfield and Cook uh, software factory stuff. Right. Right. When you talk to the guys who are working on Oslo, who are working on M and M grammar and so forth, you hear the word models a lot. Sure. You hear That's them what M say, stands well, for, yeah, right? exactly. It's all about models. It's right. all about building a model. It's all about representing the model, storing mm -hmm. the model, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And M is, you know, one way of being able to represent that model, a textual way of representing that model. And there's, you know, at least according to the opening chapter of the M reference that Addison Wesley printed and was handing out a PDC, this is just one approach to creating and manipulating. The goal of, of all of these model-oriented folks is essentially to try to close the gap more closely between what the customer wants and what we're building. And this is a very old goal. Sure, no. I mean, this yeah. is something, you know, the case tool guys tried to do it. The MDA guys tried yeah. to do it. Executable UML tried to do it. We've been constantly, and, and we're still, you know, there's still this large gap. Yeah. You know, the customer says what they want, and we have to somehow meet them halfway, you know, based on what we know how to do, because there is really no customer-facing tool for doing programming yet. Right. But up to now, technical people have learned the domain well enough to build the app. Well, in theory. That's right. really been I, I in that's theory what, how apps ultimately got built. It, 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 this implies that we're going to try and go the other way, where we're providing tools to domain experts that they could ultimately. The problem here is this: the problem here is this that um, customers customers can say sort of the business case, but they can't necessarily describe you know some of the technological stuff. I mean, there's really an area right where the two of these meet. Right. Sure. That's definite overlap. And yeah, we as technical professionals, we like to say, oh yeah, well, we've gone and learned the business domain well enough to represent it in software. To me, I don't think that's true. I think we have tried. I think we have undergone a number of efforts. And I think the agile approaches, customer on site and so forth, have gone to great lengths to try to close Just that get gap. that domain guy tighter, more exactly. tightly tied to the process. But at the end of the day, I think we have failed in many respects. And I'm not sure that this is a direction that we want to be in long term simply because this almost argues that an architect who wants to build a hospital has to understand medicine in order to build the hospital correctly. I and don't I think don't, that's untrue either. And I don't know. I don't know how well... Well, he certainly has to know how to build hospitals. He has to know how to build a building that won't fall down. But he, and he has to be able to allow the building... He has to be able to allow the domain expert hopefully to build he's, right. Hopefully he's built a hospital before. Yeah, but, some, but, but what happened? I mean, how does an architect build a hospital for the first time? Right. Yeah. Right. Where do you get that initial knowledge? Uh, I'm going to take a question here from Oren. So, I'm doing a lot of things with DSLs in domain-specific languages. My goal, whenever I create a DSL, 
is to get something that is business readable. I don't think, and I don't think that uh, you should strive to get something that is business writable, that the business person can go and build the software. They don't have the uh, right thinking, they don't have the right tooling, they don't have the right mindset to actually be able to uh, build software. A trivial example is they don't understand how transactions work or they don't understand why source control matters. But they should be able to look at your source code and get a good idea of what you're doing. And is this and be able to, is yeah. this what you want me to do? That's, that's the goal. That's what I want to be. Now, trying to get something, a single model that can span the entire, even a single application. The entire application is very, very hard. Application is composed of multiple layers, multiple sections of the application. In, in each of them, different parts of the application have a different meaning. Uh, if we go back to the uh, DDD book, and Eric Evans gave the example of shipping. Now, in one part of the application, you really care about itinerary and how much each uh, part of the, each leg of the itinerary costs. In the other part, you're doing a calculate the shortest itinerary according to time, cost, whatever. And this is a true, this is true CS problem. Find the shortest path in the graph. So here's an example of a single application, single, same problem of I want to look at the itinerary, but in the same place, I want to look at it in two completely different models. Mm. So that's why mm. I think that Trying to get into the single one true model is not something that is going to be successful because there isn't anything, there isn't any such thing. Well, and this is definitely, I mean, this has definitely been a problem that we've wrestled with yeah. for a long time, sure. right? Trying to build. And again, this is something that we, I mean, I'll, I'll point the finger squarely at myself. We in the C++ space, the, the, the crowd that I hung out with, I think we perpetuated that notion of there will be, we can build a single model, we can build a single framework, we can build a single, whatever you want to call it, yeah. that will represent the entirety of the business. Yeah. And we just lost sight of the fact that, you know, if you try to do this, you're, in, you're inevitably going to come up with something that's extremely large, bloated, and difficult for people to learn, or is going to be, you know, necessary to extend in lots of different ways and lots of different directions. And Arguably, we're not back to that single model anymore. I want to just take a minute to uh, bring you a message from our sponsor, Telerik. Our friends at Telerik are working hard as usual to bring you exciting new stuff for your .NET toolbox. How about two brand new control suites, RAD controls for WPF and RAD controls for Silverlight? That's right. If you started building next-generation applications, you now have UI components with Telerik quality and Telerik reliability. Both product lines are derived from the same code base and share the same API, so transition is seamless. Uh, they have many improvements in the other robust suites for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Windows Forms also, as well as the intuitive reporting tool. But product alone isn't everything. To jumpstart your projects and help you easily get up to speed with these great tools, Telerik has got a couple of unique training resources, the Telerik Interactive Trainer and Telerik TV, of course, which I'm the host of. Now that's what I call summer heat. Go check out all the details at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com. And if you happen to run into those guys, say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. I'm just thinking hard about this whole uh, DSLs for business point of view. I don't know that I'm ever going to have my customer read my code. It's almost as if I'd rather, when I read their code, 
that I'm going to be automatically able to translate that into domain speak to my customer? This is an interesting question um, because I don't know. I mean, I think within the DSL community, I, I, I don't know that we really decided one way or the other onto where exactly we want to be. Do we want? Do we really want business people, subject domain experts, right, to be able to write the code? Right. That's that's the far <laughs> end of the spectrum, right. which is to say, let me give them a language that they can write their own stuff. Because there is a definite advantage to that, because it means if I can enable them to do their work themselves, it gets me out of the business of having to rewrite this code on a regular basis. Right. And the example I'll use here is, you know, imagine you're, you're Amazon.com or some equivalent online e-commerce retailer. Right. You know, there are specials and deals and promotionals and so forth that are changing on a daily basis. Yeah. And I don't necessarily, as a programmer, want to be the guy that they're coming to each morning at 8 o'clock and saying, okay, this is what needs to be done, trying to implement that and put it out there and have it compiled and ready to go by 5 o'clock p.m. But that's where we have these content management solutions that are so that we don't need web designers to put new content. Well, that's, that's exactly part of the, you know. As you guys are talking, I'm still trying to think of, like, the business case for, for DSLs. What are we trying to solve? Are we trying to make it easier for developers? To, because, is, Oren, do you have a problem when a customer comes to you and says, I want a s- system that does this? Do you have a problem translating that into code? The pro- depending on the scenario that you have. A simple example. Um, well, my question is, would it, it be easier for you to sit down and think about how this model should work? Or would it be easier for you to create a whole new DSL for yourself and then use the DSL? What are you trying to do? The, the, I think that's what he's asking you. That's what I'm asking you. <laughs> uh, let me give you a version. Yeah. I did a payroll system. I did an HR system. Payroll was one of them. I didn't touch the payroll part, but I saw the coder. Trying to understand what was going on there, just figuring out what the business wanted was extremely hard. Being able to talk to the business in their own language, being, and I did it using DDD, so, uh, not with the DSL at this project. Okay. But I was able to go to the business after I, after I had the, mo- the model in my head. Okay, here are the things that I'm doing now. Here are the problems that I, f- that I found out. One of the problems was that they didn't have... The code told me that the business didn't have the concept. Now, the business had the concept. Was and the big, code told you this? Yes. I... Foreign is the code whisperer. The code no. is speaking to him. <laughs> it's, the deal. Um, it's, I it's related to time. Okay, you can't in a HR system. You can't ask the question, "What is your name?" You have yeah. to ask the question, "What is your name yeah. at this point?" And what is the point of view that you're asking the question? Yeah. So, what is the effective date? Now, at certain point in the uh, application. I was asked to ask, I needed to give the, the, the answer to a question that they didn't have enough information about. They had the implicit uh, 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 concept of the current date, which wasn't really uh, implicit and was different between okay. the different parts of the system. So by doing this in this way, where the code explicitly required that, I was sitting down, writing code, I need to put the date here. Which date? Yeah. So I have to go to the business. I see. So, in other words, once you translate this through a DSL, then the whole the conversation of moving forward with features changes, that kind of I stuff need, becomes easier. I, because I you, yeah. Where do I get this? Now, the reason for the, to go to the DSL is 
I want to be able to break it down to the level in which I can take a business requirement, write it up, and uh, plug it in. Okay. And that's it. All right. And that is uh, the way that I'm using most DSL is using sort of the command pattern. You have a script. The script implements some functionality. It's getting picked up by the application, executed whatever. So you're saying it definitely does make a difference for you as a software developer. It makes it easier for you. I can write code that is, I can write code script, a code script that is extremely easy to read, extremely easy to express business uh, okay. logic, or even trivial example. I'm, I'm sorry, I can go from That's the okay. Time, yes, we can tell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let, let's say that you have the concept uh, of um, if user is a preferred customer and he hasn't paid for the last uh, 30 days, yeah. give him another 30 days. Yeah. If he's not a preferred customer, give him a call account. Okay. If he's a preferred customer and he buys over $500, then give him a 5% discount. Yeah. Now, when you write this down, is a part of uh, when you when you write this down as part of a, a specification. Yeah, it's some reasonable. When you write it down as a DSL, there is this big, huge concept that shouts at you: "We have a problem. We have a problem because now we have the uh, the concept of a customer type which has behavior associated with that. Yeah, because now I can say, okay, let's drop that previous way that we talked about. Let's now talk about something else." When I'm a, when I'm a, a, a preferred customer, then I have the, this behavior when I'm uh, late for payment. Then I have this behavior when I'm uh, uh, getting another over five hundred dollars. And if I'm a regular customer, and now I'm able just by structuring myself in a way that makes sense from the business perspective yeah. to sit with the, with the customer bring up a concept that they actually didn't have. They didn't have the notion yeah. of the customer. Is a, is to the customer. All right. So I think th I think the answer to my question is yes. Well, I, I, and I think again that's Thanks. you know I, I mean it. you know in all fairness yeah you know to, to to Oren I mean that's that's one angle to this right the, the the DSL the DSL community the people who are thinking about this stuff are are sort of scattered over a continuum here right there's one thought there's one school of thought that says. You know, as Oren points out, the DSL is really for the developers to better be able to communicate with the business. Yeah. The sort of further out, more radical DSL, you know, school of There's thought. There's almost says, more of an encapsulation angle to that, too. The fact that I can describe a preferred customer gets a 5% discount for purchases over $500 succinctly and in a grouping rather mm -hmm. than having it scattered in code. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It okay. sounds very compelling to me. Yeah, I wouldn't even call it encapsulation. I would call it collation. Okay. Right? Bringing all the code, bringing that. all the relative stuff together the, in one Those place. relative elements come together and are descriptive of the And task. this is an area, for example, that some <laughs> of the guys who talk about rules and rules engines right. will say, well, that's, you know, that's something that should be expressed in a rules engine <laughs> that is you know, invoked... And and rules engines, you know, they, the, the, the language there was typically intended to be more business facing. Right. Because the goal here was to say, let the business developers or let the business users, et cetera, um, you know, let them express the rules directly and get me out of the business of having to write mm -hmm. all that code Absolutely. in C Sharp or Java or whatever. Yeah. All right, here's a question for you. Just change Shoot. gears a little Shoot. bit. So where does, uh, we've sort of painted a continuum of programming right. languages, right. the DSLs, the object languages, functional languages. What's M? I have no clue yet. 
to be my, very my honest, that says it's a, it's a domain specific language. The no, no, it's a, it's a language to create domain specific languages. Well, no, 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 no. There's two elements to this. Well, right? M, M, is, M is about data, and there's there's M is which is which is about data, yeah, right? Being right, able yeah. to describe to declare these entities. That's right? right. M is a schema language, right? As in, you could write a language, write a sentence that says Ted Neward has five hundred dollars in his account, and no. it would turn that into data. No, 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 no. What M M the language. There's MG, right? The M grammar, M which grammar. will do what, yeah, yeah, what yeah. you just said, right? right. Let okay. me create a language that will turn into M entities. Yeah. M is the language for basically declaring those entities, for yeah. saying there is a type person who has a name and an amount of money. Well, is that M schema? Or is that something? Well, or is it called M schema? I'm not entirely sure what M schema is at this point because is that even M, anything, or am I am I smoking I don't crack? Know, it does exist. Yeah, All right. I, there's there's a lot of things that they're sort of the way I look at the Oslo world right now is it's sort of like watching a skyscraper get built. Yeah, and we see a bunch of posts stuck in the ground. Right, but how exactly they're going to get welded together to turn into a building? Yeah. really has yet to be. I mean, that stuff has yet to be built. One is of the it, it, but has it already been planned? Is there a blueprint out there? I, I just get the fact that Oslo was at PDC sort of implies to me they're still figuring this out, and we're. Oh, oh the yeah, yeah. To, they're, they're, be, they're, to get response, they're definitely fun. still figuring this out. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that the, I don't think that they're in the final stages of architecture and design here. I, right. I, I think they're very much in the, please give us feedback mode. But it's been a long time. Well, you know, I mean, when you're trying to create sort of a unified world theory of, I mean, when they were working on WCF, right? They worked on WCF for a number of years right. before it emerged into the sunlight. Yes. Um, you know, the gestation period for these, we want to change the world kinds of projects tends to be fairly long. Yeah, mm. I, I and, agree. And, you know, this is essentially, I mean, this is, this is, again, they're trying to create sort of a unified field theory of data. Mm. The, the, the thing that codenames Oslo mm. is supposed to encompass not only relational data, but also hierarchical data and also any other form of data. Okay. Which... And perhaps I'm mischaracterizing it, yeah. but that seems to me an audacious and almost scary goal because I'm not sure if that is, in, and, and it may very well, you know, I would love for Chris Sells to be right here next to Well, me. we are going to be talking to him We're soon to about it. Chris so, Sells soon, yeah, so definitely. We'll, and I promise that he, he, well, he's promised that he'll say a bit more than the last time he was on the show yeah. talking about Oslo. Well, now that it's public, <laughs> they can start to talk a little yes. bit about it. But fundamentally, I think, you know, the, the way I understand this is that you will write M grammar yeah. to create a language that is business friendly. Yes. That will then be able to create M entities. But right. one of the things that I'm still not seeing is, number one, how am I accessing and manipulating M entities? Well, so you can do that through the designer. But, but, but. Again, I could do that through the or designer. You can do it in so your I'm going to install the designer on every user's work. Well, or you, or that's a good point. Or you, or you build. Yeah. See, I don't know. See, and there's the code part. I'm not sure. We're, we're assuming <laughs> that ultimately C Sharp and VB will be able to produce and consume these entities right. in some fashion, and that those bits are not there well, in the PDC. I thought, I thought you question. were using M to create your own DSL that would. No, M Grammar creates the DSL. Yeah. M declares the entities. So M is the language that you uh, define the entities with. M, in many respects, seems like um, a replacement for SQL. It's it's literally a it's a it's literally a replacement for 
sequel but data it does declaration. Use sequel. I mean, it translates. It to turns sequel, into sequel yeah, right yeah. now in its current incarnation. Yeah. yeah. But there's no reason once you've got that language existing that it couldn't be turned into something else as well. That's well, I guess theory. maybe we should change the subject since we're just conjecturing on stuff that somebody else knows a lot more about than any of us. Yeah. Well, the thing, <laughs> the thing that that. that for me, at least, the outstanding questions, you know, the questions that I would posit for people to consider is, yeah. you know, how am I going to use Oslo within my existing infrastructure? Because right. nobody's going to go if, if I, Oslo requires. I think complete, the first question is, why do I need to use Oslo? No, I think. Or the first does, question it, solve, is does how? it solve a problem that no, 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 I no. have? I think the first question is how. I think the most important question is why. But the first question is how, because once we know how. That will lead to better understanding of why or why not. Without knowing how, we're still kind of up in the air as to what exactly is the technical case for Sure. This. Well, yeah. Okay. So we've asked a lot of questions here today. Yeah. So we'll carry some of those <laughs> questions back to Chris Sells, <laughs> will. I think. I'm sure. Without a doubt. Uh, so the, what are you playing with language-wise these days? What's, what, you, there's all these different choices. I know oh. you've got that interest in F-sharp. Um, I, to be honest with you, I have a, uh, a, a VMware image that I call my languages image that oh, yeah. has probably something upwards of 150 different languages installed into it. So, um, do you feel, do you feel okay? Language a year. Yeah. Um, are, are you it, well, Ted? I'm just, I'm having fun. What can I say? <laughs> I'm a language whore, right? Um, <laughs> can we say that on .NET Rock? What can't we say? I think we can, say, actually. Dude, I've, I, I've heard you say much worse, right? <laughs> um, just don't listen to shows 50 through 100. That's all. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, for example, obviously I'm playing a lot with F-Sharp, because yeah. we've talked about F-Sharp with Amanda. Um, I'm playing a lot with Scala, which is... Scala. Scala is a similar object functional language. Isn't that a Supreme Court justice? JVM. Uh, no, I think that's slightly that's Scalia, different. Scalia, actually. Scalia, yeah. yeah. I don't think he has a programming language named no. after him yet, but, but we'll start working on that. Um, but it's interesting that you reference it, you refer to these now as object functional languages, as opposed to what other kinds of functional languages? Well, there's pure functional or not impure functional. Not object. Erlang, for example, is a pure functional language with no sense of objects at all, whatsoever, none whatsoever. Yeah, F sharp sort of does use objects, doesn't F sharp very definitely has. Yeah, objects. but this is. I mean, it, for F sharp to live in a CLR, isn't there always going to be some objectness about it? It'd be the CLR is so intrinsically object centric. If you're running on top of the CLR, yes. Yeah. Which Erlang does not. No. Which unless, Haskell does not. Right. Which, you know, Lisp does not. Unless you have of. some layer that translates everything to objects for the CLRs. Well, say. Where I no, there's about. some specific rules around this. If you want to ah. be a, according to the common language infrastructure, the yeah. CLI spec, right, the ECMA spec that, you know, the CLR obeys, blah, blah, right. blah. If you want to be a uh, CLS consumer, yeah. common language specification consumer, you have to at least be able to understand objects. To okay. be a CLS producer, you have to be able to define new object types. So, for example, JScript.net, uh, which Microsoft had to write when they were writing the ASP.NET bit. Yeah. JScript.net is a CLS consumer, but is not a CLS producer. Okay. Right? Got it. So they understand objects, but they can't necessarily define new object you types. can't create objects. CLS. Yeah. Well, you can create new instances. New instances, but, but you, you can't, create new you can't define right. classes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so... Yes, you have to be able to understand objects in order to run on top of the CLR. I mean, at the end of the day, if you sure. didn't, there's no way you could consume any of the BCL. Right? right. Sure. Yeah. But you don't necessarily have to be an object language. You just have to know how to consume objects. Yeah. This is sort of akin this is to an interesting the classic. Line. 
Well, this is sort of akin to the classic VB, right? Yeah. yeah. VB knew how to consume objects, but couldn't necessarily define new types of. And now you're talking about early VB. Yeah, no yeah, interfaces yeah. Oh, yeah, or no yeah, all of that polymorphism. Stuff, right? Early, right. early classic VB. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And, you know, very frankly, most of the people who are building languages on top of the CLR, general purpose languages on top of the yeah. CLR, are building them to be both CLS consumer and CLS producer. Now, is F-sharp going to end up being a general purpose language? It already is. We already asked them this question. Yeah. It already is. But it's just an interesting debate because the way we're trying to use it seems to be a very specialized task. We're not going to build well, our entire app in F-sharp. And this is where I think, you know, those of us and who opinions are looking, differ wildly. Yeah, I was going to say, this say where those of us who are in the F-sharp space... Um, you know, Amanda and I go back and forth on this all the right. time, right? What exactly will be the role of F Sharp? What exactly do we, what exactly would we want? If I could wave my magic wand and say F Sharp should be this well, and it will be this. Forget about F Sharp. If you could wave your magic wand, you've got 150 languages under your belt now. What, what is the ultimate? Have you, have you been satiated yet? <laughs> and no. what, and what, Hell no. What do you want? I mean, what because, do you want in a language? Well, see, the thing is... Do you that, want something that can be both functional and object-oriented? Or it's kind of like saying, what do you want in a person? Yeah, well, okay. I mean, do you, Carl, ever want to stop evolving? Uh, okay. And, Good and, question. I mean, really, there's a whole bunch of problems that languages have not really gone off to try to solve Well, this yet. is what I'm trying to get at, yeah. So, for example, um, the notion of state machines, Right. There are a lot of times where inside of the systems that we're building, we're building small state machines. Yes. As of yet, we really haven't seen a language to sort of describe the state machines in transition. So I would love to Cleanly. see a language, an object-oriented language, that allowed me to describe the state transitions inside the object. Yeah. And be able to specify, okay, you can only transit from here to here to here, and if you try to go this other direction, that generates an exception. Because that would be a lot easier than having to code for specific situations. Having to code the state pattern state directly pattern. and so forth. Yeah, um, yeah. There's certainly questions around security. There's around capabilities-based security, right? Yeah. Can this system do X, Y, or Z? Can this user do X, Y, or Z? Yeah. The user, the notion of role and role-based security is something that is currently enforced at a library level, at an API level, yeah. right? not something inside the language. Okay. Um, the notion of object-level security in the sense of once we have the concept of role inside the language, being able to say that certain methods are only invocable by certain users or by yeah. certain roles, and the language enforces this in the same way that the language enforces public or private. Well, we sort of had... I've, I've, that sounds a lot like code access security, which, as but again, you know, that was, was, done at was so wildly popular yes, that wildly. it's used everywhere today. And and the fact is, you know, for a lot of developers, security is one of those things that's, oh, oh yeah. this is scary, I don't want to well, touch no, it. Well, no, it's not scary. It's just the biggest pain in the ass we've ever had to deal with. Well, for a lot of people, it's freaking scary. Maybe not yeah. for you, but for a lot of people, it's scary. because uh, As a developer, I, I mean, and I'm just, I'm putting this out there as the way developers think. Security is a, is a hindrance to my job as a developer. Because All the way up until the point where you get sued. Uh, no, no, I'm, I know. I know it's important, right. but most developers, security is just uh, getting in the sure. way of me doing my job. And it's but also make, RAM. We do it at the end. Yeah. Well, see, and that's the thing is, when we do it at the end, I mean, you could make the, sa you could make the same statement about quality, right? Yep, Quality sure. is a hindrance. If I don't care about the quality of my code, I'll be yeah. able to write code a lot sure. faster. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. We'll spray some quality on at the end. Exactly. Yeah. And, well, and, I'm, and I, I security mean, I'm, is very I, much I, in I that totally, I'm with you. Right. I'm, I'm with you. Oh. 
Apparently, they like that. They like that. Happy yeah, they, um, they like the security thing. I there's, think. there's. I mean, these are just a couple of these things, right? These infrastructural concerns that we as developers. I mean, right now we have to solve using APIs and libraries like yeah. access security and so yeah. forth. And I mean, the same thing was true of objects mm. ages ago, right? Mm -hmm. Twenty years ago, when we were writing Windows code, we were doing objects. Right. But we were doing objects with API calls. Yeah. And it was awkward, and it was difficult, and it yeah. was, you know, there was a definite cap on what we could keep straight in our head. Sure. Right. right? Windows and X Windows both followed the same basic yeah, model. And you reach a point of complexity where you just can't manage it anymore. Yeah. And at that point, right. the languages evolved to say, we will take on a number of these complexities freeing you right. to free up more of your brain for more of the problem domain. Right? Sure. It feels like now we've come full circle because at the beginning of this conversation we were talking about how we hit the pinnacle of object languages. We've got our language now. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Well, and we, thought, all we, these thought we, had, yeah. we thought we had. So it was just, did we hit the end of the line with object-oriented oh, languages? Yeah. And that's what sort of, uh, this is as much as we're going to get out of this? Yes. Now we have to go a different direction. Yes. And we have to go in a direction that doesn't preclude objects. No. Right? Just as objects did not preclude procedural. Right. Right? We cannot preclude what we've already learned. But yeah, we hit that wall. And we hit that wall, quite frankly, I think about 1998. MTS and EJB mm. yeah. were essentially attempts to try to extend the, the object mentality to include a, a, a variety of a, a variety of issues, a variety of concerns right. that objects couldn't deal with effectively, yep. and state and being one of them. Well, state and transactions, and transactions all those kinds of stuff. And, right, connections. And we 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 tried our damnedest for ten years to make MTS and EJB make those models, those container models, work. And what we discovered is, yes, we can make them work, but. Damn, it's a lot of work. It, yeah. yeah. Doesn't mean it doesn't suck. Right. right. And so now what we're coming back to, right, is, you know, the DDD guys are coming back to sort of a more pure object space and saying, all right, let's just, let's just live in the pure object space for a while. Right. And yeah, okay, that's good. But we know where, you know, we know where the edge of the world is. Right. right? We know where those boundaries are. And to me, it feels like we're sort of saying, yeah, yeah, we don't want to go over those boundaries. We don't want to try to build a... There be dragons. Exactly. <laughs> we don't want to go explore that new world. We don't want to go explore any of the other worlds. The world we've got <laughs> is just fine. Yeah. And I don't buy that for a second, quite frankly. What I want to do is I want to find a way to bridge this, to be able to bring you know the domain-driven stuff, the object stuff, mm -hmm. along with us as we go and explore a new dimension, a new world. Functional aspect, whatever. Yeah, and that's sort of the same thing I think is resonating with a lot of people. They look at some of the functional stuff and say, "Oh my God, I can do in one line yeah. what would have taken me ten, twenty lines of Java, you know, ten, twenty lines of C sharp yeah. or more." Yeah. Ooh, that's that's Compelling. now people are getting excited. That's what we've always done with languages: is that right. we, the next generation language rolled up a complicated concept into a line. Right, right. now, right. my question is how much of this has to do with us just hitting the wall on languages and trying to solve new problems and how much of it has to do with, say, the hardware. Like I'm, I'm almost feeling like the whole parallel processing concern of the, mm. that the new server architectures, the new computer architectures are bringing is a red herring in this. That it's a gateway drug. Yeah. It's a gateway drug. Right. The, the, the problems of concurrency <laughs> Will lead people to look for new solutions, right? Yes, which will lead them but in, I don't, in directions we really of language. Have this, are we really at the point where we're having problems with concurrency now? I think so. I think concurrency has always been hard. The, quite, my question is: in the past two years since these languages have erupted, has it really been because concurrency has gotten really hard? Well, mm -hmm. amongst the 
among sort of the 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 thought leaders, if you will, right. within within this space, they're looking at you know the a certain number of them had been you know sort of preaching in the wilderness about the dangers of concurrency yeah. and specifically about massive concurrency, yes. massive yeah. parallelism. And Beyond nobody cared because that was a problem that only a few percentage of people were running into. Yeah. Because only a few percentage of people were actually dealing with, you know, N-way CPUs, N-way yes. machines. Well, and it actually had problems that would take up more than one, two, three threads. Now, right. now we are very squarely in, because, you know, how many people at this conference are carrying around an N-way machine? Everybody's right? got a dual yeah. core, but right. quad cores are becoming run in the mill. Well, and quad cores are here. And they're, they're getting more. Octa cores are coming in the next coming. 18 months. And then it's desisexa cores. <laughs> and, you know, now you're I mean, just getting weird. Intel's marketing team is in for some serious problems yes. there, right? Yeah, the um, words are going to get long. Yeah, and and quite frankly, right, you know, three years from now, it's not going to be unusual for you to have a server with 32 CPUs in it. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, a lot of that can be can be assigned uh, to different applications, too. I mean, there are more uses for those cores than sure, just a single, problem, Carl, single application with problem, lots of Carl, threads. Is, is all, I'm say, all I'm saying is that I'm I know not what you're disagreeing saying, and I'm with you. Shut up and let me talk now. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, buddy. No, seriously. The problem that we're running into, that we've always had, is that what Andy Grove giveth, Bill Gates taketh away. Yeah. Right? We want more stuff out yeah. of our software. So even if, I mean, the, the issue here is that the CPUs, at least for the foreseeable future, yeah. are going to stay at 2 to 3 gigahertz. Right. Sure. But the problems that people want us to solve are only going to get larger and more complicated. Right. And so taking the... the Forgive me, the very naive line that says, oh, well, we'll just run my single-threaded application on one of those CPUs and it will all be okay. Yeah, Who said but, that? Well, that's kind of what you said. No, that's right? not we what I said. assign these applications. That's not what I said. C okay, well, then I missed surgery. I apologize. Well, you didn't give me a chance to say what I was going to say. Oh, fair. That's okay. Very well done. Very but, well but done. But I'm so glad that you brought that up. But see, this is <laughs> it's not just you who's saying that. There are a lot yeah. of people out there who are saying, well, I can continue to program in the single-threaded model. Sure. It'll just get its own CPU and everybody will be happy. Right. Yeah. But the problem is we're going to want to do a lot more. We're going to go from... Oh, you know, I totally agree. I, to I think that the, because the solution is there, the problem will naturally... Well, the, the, we you can see the problem coming, right? The problems will Terabytes get there. Terabytes of data yeah. analysis are happening today. Right. Petabytes of data analysis will be happening tomorrow. Yeah. And if the CPUs aren't getting faster to keep up with that, you know, data and analysis... And they haven't been. They've been getting us more CPUs. Yeah. You have no choice. You have to start going parallel. No, absolutely. I mean, that's literally the, the, the decision we face now over the next couple of years is we're going to have to start structuring our programs the, in parallel. The financial sector absolutely, absolutely needs this because the data, is just, data sets are getting bigger and bigger. The, We're running square into this problem today. The scientific community, yeah, the you know astro astrophysicists calculating, and those are the people who are running into it today. Sure. Right? And the danger of saying, "Oh yeah, those people are hitting this." Yeah. Is people are going to say, "Oh yeah, well, so if I'm not a math science domain, I don't, I don't have, have to worry about, about this. Yeah. I don't have to worry about this." Amazon, eBay, Microsoft, anybody who's trying to produce things that's facing the public internet. Yeah. Right. Because the number of users climbing on the internet is is going up every day. Those are all intrinsically parallel processing problems yeah, as they've well. They've been pretty well solved with web servers so far. Those yeah, well, 
Have you? When's the last time you went to the Twitter website? Yeah, just a few minutes ago. Yeah, but that's a Ruby problem. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a Rails. It's issue. a scaling problem. Yes. right? I mean, yeah. there's nothing intrinsically wrong with Rails in of itself. There's nothing intrinsically. If they had written it in ASP.NET, it would have been just as bad. That's an, because, an interesting question, but it is, you it's know this actually, better than anybody, yeah, Richard. But it's not just that's not actually the point. I mean. The, what I'm interested in is massively parallel tasks that return a single result. Sure. Twitter right. and websites are parallel results for parallel requests. Absolutely. Yeah. So Absolutely. What, what I don't see today is the singular app, that killer app that's going to need, a, that a regular run-of-the-mill desktop user is going to need four cores for. Well, I mean, think about when you fire up, you know, when you fire up a, a standard installation of, of Windows XP today, yeah. right? How many threads are running? Lots, about 175. Yeah, but right, not and not necessarily intelligently, just because well, people have called a lot of threads into existence. But the fact is, um, I mean, if you fire up Word, if you fire up Outlook, there's a whole number of you know, a whole bunch of threads running there simultaneously. Yes. And it's not just about parallel processing. It's not just about taking a pile of data. And carving it up and letting it, it's not just master slave pattern. Right. Right. It's about lots of things operating on the same state at the same time. Your spell checker in Word, yep. video it's, rendering, all of that stuff. But these right? are still, you still specialize stuff. Still looking for the run of the mill app. I know I fire. I don't, I, I don't know that Word is, is specialized. I, I agree. But look, I don't think that Word is parallel either. Just because it's got a lot of threads running doesn't mean it's parallel anything. But that's my point. It's not just about parallel, it's about concurrency. And it seems like that might be doublespeak, but yeah. concurrency says I have several things happening at the same time. Yeah. Parallel says I have several things of exactly the same kind running at the same running time. Running simultaneously. Right. And very honestly, here's a very simple sort of low-level programming uh, scenario. If I have a for loop, right, and this for loop wants to you know, basically print the numbers 1 to 10, do they need to happen in order? It's a good question. Right. Because if they don't need to happen in order, there's a language called OpenMP. It's actually a series of language extensions for both C++ and Fortran. Right. And OpenMP essentially says, and Visual C++ is an OpenMP compiler, I can do a parallel for loop. So in other words, for, when it hits the start of this, will actually spin off ten mm -hmm. threads, one for each of those, and execute them in parallel. And then wait until all 10 have finished before we continue executing. And we're starting to see constructs for C-sharp for this sort of thing as well. P-Link and yeah, the task yeah. parallelization the task library, parallel and so library. And what we Great need stuff. to do, there is a, um, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a law, right, Amdahl's law, which basically constrains the amount of parallelism we can get based on the number of required sequential operations. Yes. And what programmers are going to need to do in order to be able to benefit from this newly parallel world, this newly multi-CPU world, is they're going to need to start thinking in parallel because otherwise they're going to hit a scalability limitation very, very quickly, right? You mentioned mm. earlier the notion of web servers. Well, the web scales like nobody's business because the web is intrinsically stateless. Right. If you read Fielding's RESTful thesis, he he's very vehement about the fact that there are no cookies. There is no server-side state. Yes. Because then we can scale out by simply saying, yeah, there's a whole bunch of static resources more, on a new more, server. Add more, add more, add more. Most of the web applications people are building are not stateless. No, hmm. well, most of the applications people are building are not stateless. But people think the web means it can scale, where a WinForms app won't. 
right? Again, I'm talking perception here, yes. not reality. And you and I both know you can that choose to make it as scalable or non-scalable as you care to make it. This is, and a lot of that depends on how much of that state you're having to manage. And a lot of that happens to also deal with how are you approaching the problem? How right. are you designing well, your one solution? One of the things that's interesting about functional languages is this idea that there's a, a very tight element on mutability, that, that state is now something you have to treat gently. Yes. And you want to have as little of it as possible. Right. And what state you have, you store on the stack via recursive calls. Right. Or continuation passing well, it's, calls. That's just about minimizing Absolutely. mutability. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that, yep. paral- that will parallelize better. And that happens, I mean, there's a natural synergy between functional and parallel. Ah, I guess that's it. I guess our time is up, Ted. That was a great tangent, of course, but uh, always uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, yeah. No matter what fun, we're yes. talking about. Always fun. And uh, for days. We could. We really could. We have. We have. There's this a difference. We almost did. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a time boy. Life is hard.